Have you found what you're looking for? Have you found that thing that you love, that that makes you happy in life? That's the push of Steve Jobs to us as we think through, really, what are we here for? My name's Rowan. I'm one of the pastors here at Auckland AV. And it's my privilege tonight to look at this passage that Lily read for us and help us together to think about what it has to say. Think about what it has to say about the world that we live in. And I think that you'll find this evening that this passage will have a profound impact on the way that you walk out these doors this evening, the way you think about life. The advice of one of the world's most successful human beings, Steve Jobs, is this. Find what you love. Find what makes you happy. Now, he's a guy that was pretty successful, founder of Apple Computers, which is now the largest company in the world. Did you know that? Second only to ExxonMobil, who's an oil giant, but they're twice as large. They have $150 billion in cash assets right there ready. Uh, in cash reserves. I think these guys, if, if Apple were a country, they'd be around 98 in terms of the whole amount of money that they own. 98th most wealthy country in the world, but they're just one company. In, in 2012, um, the number of Apple products in the US meant that on average, there was 1.6 Apple products for every household in the US. That's an influential man. That's a successful man, isn't it? A man who's been at the top of the game and has lots to say. And I think there's some helpful things, helpful wisdom that we get from here. But I want us to ask tonight, as as we think through life, is his answer to life, to success, to satisfaction, to happiness, is that right? It's advice that we hear. It's pretty similar to what your parents might say to you as you approach exams, as you walk out the door, kind of, thinking, what am I going to write? You know, that, that lovely motherhood statement that my mum said to me. You know, it's okay, Rowan, we still love you even if you fail. As long as you're happy. You ever had anyone say that to you? As long as you're happy. Things in life don't matter that much. As long as you're happy, you find what you love, you do good things. That's where satisfaction and meaning in life are found. That's what the world around us is saying. That's what Steve Jobs is saying. But as we come to the words of the creator of the universe, that's the claim of the writing inside the Bible, is that God, the one who made the universe, who sustains the universe, has actually sent these words to us through human authors throughout history so that we might hear his take on the world. As we come to this man, this teacher who's writing from the viewpoint of King Solomon of Israel, we see another take on satisfaction and happiness, one that is very, very different to the world that we just entered in from. We see a powerful critique on what everyone around us says we should live for. We see a very powerful critique on this view that we should do whatever makes us happy. So I want to put it to you tonight that what God's Word is saying to us here is that happiness isn't found in whatever you think makes you happy. Happiness is not found in whatever you or I think make us happy. There are two issues with with that line. One, there are bigger issues in this world than happiness. And we'll see that tonight. Solomon, this man, will flag one of them. 
But secondly, not everything or every path leads us to happiness. Not everything I think will make me happy does. Not everything that offers happiness actually delivers. Have you found that? Have you found that next thing that you wanted? That when you got it, you weren't satisfied? You wanted more? A different one? A newer model? (laughs) Steve Jobs, he created half of my unhappiness. Every time a new one comes out, you feel like you're missing out, don't you? What we get today in this section of the Bible is the take of Solomon. He was the king's um, son, King David's son. He was known as one of the richest, most powerful, most productive people on the face of the planet. Most, one of the most amazing people that we've ever seen. And at his disposal, what we see throughout this, this, kind of, this whole book was a man who had everything at his fingertips. All the money you could ever imagine, all the power you could ever imagine, all the wisdom. He asked God for something. God said, I can give you whatever you want. What do you want? He said, wisdom, and he got it. Kings from other nations were coming to him to say, tell us. He's like Albert Einstein on steroids. And yet he's got all the money in the world as well. It's just so much. Here is a guy who sets out for an experiment. And he says, well, I've got all these resources and I want to work out how to live life under the sun. If this is all there is, he says, I want to do this little experiment. If I limit my view, if I take God out of the equation and religious things, if we just look at the world around us, what I can see, touch, hear, feel, smell, what is there in life that gives me meaning? And so he sets out on an experiment to throw all his resources at all these different areas to see where happiness is found. Now, at the end of tonight's talk, we're going to give you an opportunity to to ask questions. Uh, There'll be a number that will come up on the screen. You can text your questions in. Might be uh, questions from this passage. Textions, it's a new word. You can texture us tonight. Um, (laughs) And that'll be an opportunity for you to kind of ask questions and we can bounce them around together. But I do want us to sit here and to see really on the shoulders of, of someone who's quite amazing where we find happiness. Come with me and look at this experiment. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 3. He says this, I explored with my mind how to let my body enjoy life with wine and how to grasp folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven the few days of their lives. This is a pretty amazing opportunity to sit on the shoulder of one of the world's most influential, powerful, rich, wise people. And to see his life experiment. And we talked about last week that if, if life is like a maze where you, you don't have that overarching view over the top, um, where you can't see which way it goes and, and you're in it, what Solomon's about to do is to run through that maze and try every door, everything that might give us pleasure, meaning, happiness, and say, if I throw my resources at them, what would it look like? So he starts with this with wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to seek and explore through wisdom all that's done under heaven. I said to myself, look, I've amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. Only I could say that as I walked into an exam. (laughs) My mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge of all those who've gone before me. This guy runs after wisdom. And here's his conclusion. The wise man has eyes in his head, 
but the fool walks in darkness. In other words, wisdom is good. You can see, you can look at the world around you. There's actually something good about wisdom. And the fool, the one who has no wisdom, he walks in darkness. He has no light. He walks into the exam. He goes to write answers and there's nothing there. Awkward. Yet, I also know that one fate comes to them both. So I said to myself, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been overly wise? And I said to myself that this is also futile. Wisdom says the world's wisest man. Really, it might give you a bit of life, in, in, a bit of light in life. But in the end, the dumb guy and the smart guy end up in the ground, both the same. Wisdom, what does it achieve? (laughs) Where does it get you? We end up in the same place, don't we? The university professor who's had all the accolades, who's got their stuff published, research material, who others come and say, tell me about your expertise of field. And they might pass them on to other generations, but you know what? They end up in the ground, dead. And someone else gets the fruit of their research. If you're thinking about doing a PhD, you're doing a PhD. Maybe you want to think through this tonight. Does it really mean permanent head damage? As some say it does. PhD. No, there is benefit to wisdom, he says. But all that is gained is passed on to someone else. Some other schmuck comes along and takes your research footnotes you and then takes it this tiny little bit further and they get all the accolades. Do you hate that? So Solomon then turns to achievement. He says, what can I do with my hands? Um, What we see here, if you want to look at um, verses 4 to 5, you'll see it later. He's increased all his achievements. He's like, I'm going to do stuff. He builds houses. Now Solomon, he's not like your normal do-it-yourself builder. He's not the kind of guy that goes, yeah, I'm just going to knock up a deck out the back of, of my house. And my, he's not that he doesn't go down to Bunnings and buy some stuff. This guy builds suburbs. He, he just goes, I'm going to, he builds a house for himself. It's huge. And then he builds a temple for God and he builds houses for all these people. And more than that, he, he kind of plants vineyards. He makes parks and gardens. He makes the block look like a kid's game of Duplo. What are you guys doing mucking around playing Duplo? These little tiny things go together. He's like, I'm going to make stuff. I'm going to make it good. So he builds gardens, parks. Cornwall Park was like a veggie patch compared to what Solomon does. You see, he, he says in verse 6 of chapter 2, it's not on the screen. He goes, I constructed reservoirs of water for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. We go, yeah, what sort of sprinkler system can I put in? He goes, I'm going to create a dam big enough to fill and feed Auckland with all its water. Can you do that? How does that fit into your kind of engineering background? Is that something that you'd like to... Could you have the resources to pull this off? This guy's like, I, I have achievement. I can do this stuff. Incredibly productive. And then if that's not enough, he goes, you know what? At the same time, let's up the volume on material possessions and wealth and money. Look at verses 7 to 11. He says, I acquired, acquired male and female servants, had slaves who were born in my house. I, I owned many herds of cattle and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. <laughs> I also amassed silver and gold for myself. 
and the treasures of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and I surpassed all. Hear this. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. This guy, if he saw it, he had it. He got it. It it was kind of this, he had servants who lived amongst him. Now, we live in in a part of the world where we understand the service industry. You know, people go, and you might not have a, a closed kind of washing thing. What do you call this? Washing machine, right? We might not have one of those in our flat or wherever we are, and so we might go down to the laundry mat, uh, a.k.a. mum's place, and we might get them washed for us. And we're like, oh, thanks, mum, thanks for doing that. You know, what, I'll pay you my presents for you washing my clothes. Yeah, it's a service industry. Or, or, or we might you know, we have people who come and clean our houses, and they, they, they might service our cars, and it's just helpful to be able to have that stuff happen. Solomon, he didn't go and kind of outsource stuff. He bought the whole industry. It's like you'd say, okay, um, I'm just going to buy the whole laundromat. I'm going to buy all these people to come do it for me. You know how you go down the street and you ask someone to make you a coffee for you? It's kind of, there's a privilege, as a once-off. Solomon would be like, stuff going down the street. I'm going to buy my own barista. Every morning when I wake up, I get a barista there kind of making me coffee and singing great songs. Because why wouldn't you? I want to live life to its full. Imagine that, your own barista. If you hate coffee, sorry about that. You're like, get lost. And you can say that because you're Solomon. You know, he, he hears a, a, a song on the radio. We hear a song on the radio. We're like, oh, that's a cool song. You jump on iTunes and we, we get to buy it. Solomon hears you too and says, right, Bono, move in. I'm buying you too. And Coldplay and every other thing that I like, you can play for me. Stuff plugging into these little wimpy earphone things you guys use. You think, oh, I've got them on demand. I want the band. Get up, guys. Play right now. And they do. They're there. This is many singers, he says, for himself. Cattle and sheep, the status of wealth, business. This guy was rich as the treasures of kingdoms. (laughs) And then there's pleasure. If it wasn't enough to have all the possessions in the world, all the achievements in the world, he then goes to pleasure. 2 verse 3, I explore with my mind how to let my body enjoy life with wine, how to grasp folly, pleasure. My mind's still guiding me with wisdom. I wasn't too stupid. It's like the modern day mantra, isn't it? He filled his heart with the delights of man. Food, wine, and women, he had them all. 2 verse 8 says he had many concubines, the delights of man. In fact, as, as we read the history of Solomon, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, you do the maths on that. You could sleep with one a day, every day for a whole year and still have what? At least double to go. This guy, I mean, the world around us says sex is what pleases. Solomon had it on tap, wherever he wanted, from whoever he wanted. The world around us says, oh, we can look on the internet and and see what I want to see and and feel the desires of my heart. Solomon is like, you're pathetic. I married them all. All of them were mine. Now, if you're a woman at this point, you're like, doesn't sound very exciting. It doesn't sound like a very nice guy. What he's saying is, I denied myself nothing. Anything that I thought would give me happiness, I ran to. Now, I don't think he necessarily was harsh to his wives. I don't think there's a a, a point here in which he was just some 
pimp guy who did awful things. Uh, uh, some, some say that he actually built houses for every one of his wives. That's an achievement. But I want to say at this point, if you think about what the world says will make you happy, he had it. Pleasure, he had it. He, verse 10 of chapter 2, All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure. He makes Hugh Hefner with his four women hanging off him, the Playboy Mansion guy. He makes him look even more pathetic than he already does. You only had four out of a thousand. <laughs> he always answered yes to whatever opportunity was in his reach. And there was nothing that was not in his reach. No experience, no feeling, no people. It was all there for him. Everything he had ever wanted. If you could have everything you've ever wanted, everything you've ever desired, if it could be yours, do you think you'd be happy? Do you think you'd be satisfied? Do you think you'd be like, yes, like this is life to the full. This is what it's about, living the high life. What does the man say? What is his conclusion? Who had more than you ever will, or I ever will, who experienced more, had more wisdom than anyone else. What is his conclusion? What does he get to? What end does he come to? Being able to see all that he can see with the resources that he has. 2 verse 11. When I considered all that I'd accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Ever tried chasing the wind? You look like a complete idiot. Like, come back. And you, you just can't catch it. Like, you, how do you chase the wind? He said, that's what it was like. Chasing happiness with all the resources in the universe. It was futile. Now, he doesn't say that, like, pleasure is bad. Just the verse before it, in fact, he says that pleasure is kind of good. There was something that was good about it. He talks about pleasure being a reward for all his struggles. So he's not so down on the world to say it all sucks. He's saying there's something good about this. There's something enjoyable, but in the end, it's futile, meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing to be gained under the sun. If this is all there is, what we can see, hear, feel, experience, and be a part of, he says, it's meaningless. (laughs) Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. And we get the reason why. For just like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man, since the days to come both will be forgotten. How is it that the wise man dies just like the fool? Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For everything is futile in the pursuit of the wind. In other words, We all end up in the grave. The work that I do, the moments that I have, the pleasures that we enjoy just go to nothingness. It's death is this great equalizer of life. I watched with our boys um, just on the weekend a, a, a documentary on the first man on the moon looking at Neil Armstrong. And I was like, man, that guy's a legend. He achieved great things. He's a brilliant test pilot. He was an academic, um, teaching aer- aer- aerospace engineering type stuff. Aeronautical, that's not right. Anyway, something like that. 
Uh, he's, he's a doctor in these areas. He's a brilliant test pilot, lightning reflexes. I'm like, how awesome is that? And really, in some ways, it was celebrating the life of Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon. At the end of watching that, I sat back and went, you know what? If I was Neil Armstrong, if I was the first man ever to kind of step foot on the moon, I bet you I would have feel special. I actually looked at my life and went, man, what a waste. You should have been the first one on the moon. We've got a world around us that's saying you can do whatever you want. Run, go, try. Look at the world. It's your oyster. As long as you're happy and it's good, you can achieve it all. But you know what? I can't. It's been done. And in the end, standing on the moon, so what? Someone stood on the moon. Everyone's like, whoa, that's amazing. Do you know, to stand on a country called New Zealand for the first time, those explorers, I bet you they felt like, whoa, this is great. Captain Cook, as he came across Australia, I'm the first one here. Sorry, Aboriginals. Solomon, who reached more than all of those put together, says, death is the great equalizer of life. In 2012, Neil Armstrong died, just like the fool who played spaceships and never learned anything. Both of them are dead. It comes to all rich, poor, influential, inconsequential. Do you know of all the 34 OEC, OECD countries in the world? This morning I said it was 158. I was wrong. Should have checked that figure. Um, of all the countries that are kind of the Western world, New Zealand is ranked the ninth in happiness. You are sitting right now in the ninth happiest country in the universe. Do you know that? That's pretty amazing. Do you feel happy? You should do because we're living in the ninth happiest country in the universe. Australia is number 10, if you're wondering. Uh, that's why I'm here. Well, wouldn't you be? Question is, why aren't I in Finland, Switzerland, which are up higher in the list? Um, let me give you some statistics about New Zealand. Life expectancy at birth in New Zealand is 82 years. That's long. That's good. 73% of the people aged from 15 to 64 in New Zealand have a paid job. Three quarters of people have a paid job. 74% of adults aged 25 to 64 have completed upper secondary education. Three quarters of us have a pretty good education. Here we are sitting in a university. 94% of people in New Zealand believe they know someone they could rely on in a time of need. We're relationally connected. We have someone we can go to to talk about life and what matters. That, that's huge. When asked to rate their general level of satisfaction on a scale from zero to 10, New Zealanders in this study gave their general satisfaction with life a 7.3. The average of the other countries was a 6.6. This is a happy nation. 90% of people in New Zealand reported to be in good health. 90%. Do you know what the average of the OECD countries is? 68. We are a healthy, satisfied country with great job uh, prospects, with great life prospects. Why wouldn't we be happy? Yet, the New Zealand Ministry of Youth Affairs released this statement, and I'll quote it. By international standards, New Zealand's suicide rate is one of the highest in the world. Sorry? 
the ninth happiest country in the world has a high suicide rate. Let me tell you how high. New Zealand has the highest suicide rate amongst OEDC countries for females aged 15 to 24. The highest. Overall, we're seventh on the per head of population suicide rates. Why is the ninth happiest country in the world so high on wanting to end life? What's going on here? I'll give you a little bit more information. Um, Of the 10 most happy countries in the world, six of them are in the top six suicide rates. Do you hear that? There's something about life, about living for happiness that doesn't satisfy. It's interesting, isn't it, that New Zealand is known as one of the most secular countries on the face of the earth. One of the countries that says the here and now is what we want to live for. And if life is secular, then eat and drink, enjoy life, enjoy happiness, go to your education, have a family that's connected. As long as you're happy, you should, you should have a great life, right? But it doesn't seem to be the case. There's something going on in the minds of people here in this country that just says there's something wrong with that view of living in the happiest country on earth. And I've got a hunch on what it is. See, the secular answer to life, the view of the world without God, when you take God out, it's what Solomon's showing us here, life without God, enjoying all the pleasures and the maze of life. The the secular answer is to, well, life's not that bad. Don't don't be so morbid about life. To someone who's thinking about this stuff, what's the meaning of life? It's like, no, enjoy life. Um, In moderation, enjoy its pleasures. Don't seek too much, but, but enjoy it. And whatever you do, just stop thinking about stuff as dark as death. Don't be so morbid. We're here to have life and to have fun. And Whatever you do, don't let your mind take you to the logical conclusion that if you run for the things of this world where happiness doesn't hold up, where all those things that Solomon look at, looked at don't deliver when you get to the top, if we take our minds to that conclusion and go, hang on a minute, these things don't deliver, the things that the world has been telling us don't deliver, The answer that the world around us gives that the well-balanced human needs to respond to those facts is just don't think about it. Just enjoy what's in front of you as long as you're happy. Stop thinking about it. Put your head in the sand. It's kind of like what the world is saying to us is it's like this world is, is like a pig pen. Sorry to call you pigs. I'm in there too. This world is like a pig pen and we're on the farm and we're pigs in the pig pen. And we're loving it. Looking around at the mud, being like, this is great. Life is good. I'm enjoying being a pig, the farmer. You know, you know what he does? He provides for us a slop bucket called the pleasures of life. And what we get to do is we run to the slop bucket. When I feel down, I run to the slop bucket and I stick my head in the bucket called the pleasures of life and I drink. And then I lie fat and full on the ground saying, this is life. Burp. All the while forgetting that every year a couple of pigs disappear from the pig pen. What is their end? One year some smart pig comes along and this pig says, hang on a minute, people keep, well, pigs keep disappearing from this pig pen. Where are they going? Now the pig's like, shut up, stop thinking about anything else outside the pig pen. We've got slop. Just stick your head in the bucket and drink up. It's awesome. What, what are you being so morbid for? Whatever. That's the well-balanced secular reason for life. 
There is no more than this. So drink up on the world's pleasures. Drink it up. Do you see the great irony here? The person in our society who is seen as the healthy, well-adjusted person is the one who is happy to stop thinking about the truth and the logical end of their actions. The healthy, well-adjusted, balanced person is the one who sticks their head in the sand or the slop bucket called the pleasures of life and says, this is all there is. And yet the media has the audacity to say that Christianity, who says that there's more to this life than the slop bucket, than the pleasures that that we experience, the media says, you're living in a dream world. You believe in Santa and the, 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 the tooth fairy, godmother, whatever she's called. Yet, the world around us says, no, no, just forget about what happens when you die. Don't be so morbid. How ironic it is that here in God's word, one of the most powerful, pleasured, rich men the world has ever seen gives a word on what matters in life and says that death is the great equalizer and death takes the meaning out of what we do. And Christians say that there's more to life than the pig pen that we're in. There is good in here. Yes, there is pleasure to be had. I'm not saying everything is horrible, but... And yet the secular world comes in and says, nah, just forget about it. And you guys are living in a dream world. Do you see how they've turned the world upside down? The secular view of life is what I call the firecracker view of life. You were created as, as, a, as, a, as a firecracker. Someone made you with a fuse that when you're born, they light. And the hope is that at some point throughout my life, that fuse will get down and I'll spark off and shoot into the sky like a bright star. And everyone around me will be like, ooh, and there's a bang. And it's like, this is life. You know, you want to live for your moment, your moment of kind of greatness. And then you go pop and the sky lights up with this moment of brilliance that you might have an effect on the world around you. And the world says, that's what you want to live for. You want to live for the moment you explode and, and, and you, you give like meaning to the world around you for 10 seconds. And then you drift away in the wind, gone. And the world says, wasn't it awesome that you got those 10 seconds in the sky? Really? If that is all there is, what a pathetic view of life. That we are here, we pop and we die. Is that what you live for? Is that what you spend half your life studying to have the the knowledge to do stuff, to experience things, to pop in the sky and then die? It's not really living the dream, is it? So short. 82 years? (laughs) How about forever? They're very different. But this world says that's what you've got to do. You pop in the sky, go traveling. Go and explore the delights of this world. Spend your time, your money, having an overseas experience so you can feel like you're part of the bigger globe and then you really will have lived if you've seen Europe, America. You know, really? That's it? Or if you achieve, you get the highest marks in your class, you get a university medal to put on the wall and they talk about it at your funeral. What a great person you were, how you applied yourself. Are you satisfied with that? With but a, but a glimpse? If this is all there is, and the way to live in this world is to get as much pleasure as you can, then I want to put to you tonight that 
that whole worldview puts far too much pressure on you and me to kind of make life enjoyable. If, if my life depends on the quality of my experiences and my achievements and my wisdom and my wealth right here and right now in this life, then I've got to make sure I suck the marrow out of life. I've got to make sure the experiences that I have are the best ones. The education that I have is the best education I can get. And my family is the best family, that my kids go to the best place, so there might be some legacy that can be left for them to waste my inheritance and my name. Someone, someone of my kids will be a dropkick. History, it's what happens. It might be me that's a dropkick. If this is all there is, I have to bank all my worth as a person on the achievements that I get now. Happiness isn't just a nice thing. It's necessary for me to be worth anything, to have any meaning in my life, to make these few short years worthwhile. And it makes getting those moments desperately important because my whole life and purpose and meaning hangs on me experiencing those things and succeeding in them. And if I don't get them, I'm shattered. I'm a waste. What was the point of life? See, God actually wants your happiness. He wants you to be happy. He's created this world for us to enjoy. He created you to enjoy the world he made and to enjoy him. The writer here from Solomon's point of view, he gets this. In in 2 verse 24, he says this. There is nothing better for a man than to eat, drink and enjoy his work. I've seen that even this is from God's hand. You're like, what? God stepped in for a second. He talked about God here for, the, for one of the first times. There's nothing better for a man to do than to eat and drink and to enjoy his work. I've seen that even this is from God because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? Here's the claim of this man. The pleasures that you experience when you limit your horizon to just here and now and you take God out of the picture still come from God. You're still enjoying the things that he's made, the very breath you have. You might think he's not there, but you're like a little kid taking swings while God's just holding his hand against your head, going, God doesn't exist, but I'm loving the world. (laughs) Solomon says he made it all. God wants you to enjoy pleasure and joy and happiness. But he wants the best happiness for you. He wants the most joy. The best pleasure for the people that he made. Not some joy that will stagnate and fade and be corrupted. He wants an unshakable joy that will last not 82 years, but forever. Forever. That's what he wants for you. It's the claim of the Bible. He's not some God who's like, oh, I want you to have a hard time in life and just suck it up. He made you wanting joy. We just settle for too little. Paul, one of the writers in the New Testament, that wrote lots of the New Testament, a man who understood who Jesus was and told the news of Jesus to so much of the earth. He got this fact. Peter, one of the other followers of Jesus, one of the ones that was the closest, the inner three, he talked to people about this very thing, that we place too much value on having the experience now and not enough value on the one who made us. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 18. 1 Peter 1 verse 18. He says this, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, 
let me explain that for a second. You were bought back. That's what redeemed means. You were bought back from your empty way of life. There's a way of living that's just emptiness, vanity, meaninglessness. It just blows away in the wind. You were bought out of that. Stop, stop. You don't need to live in that world anymore. You were bought out. And that way of living was an empty way of life, he says here, that you inherited from your fathers. In other words, the world you live in, the things your parents say, as long as you have fun and you're happy. Everything that, as we walk out of this world, that is trying to say to us, enjoy life, come and find satisfaction in me, just do what you love, like Steve Jobs says. All of that, he says, is empty. A fleeting moment, a firecracker moment in the sky, living in the pig pen with your face in a slop bucket. He says, you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. That moment that our very date system is based on, the existence of the man Jesus Christ, 2015 AD, ad no domini, and the year of our Lord, was the moment that Jesus came, this man, stepped into the puzzle that is this world and said, you know what, I'm, I'm the answer to life. I'm the creator of life. And you're living in this way that is empty. You need to trust me as your king. I am actually God, God the Son. And then what he said is, I'm going to walk to my grave. I'm going to literally die in your place. I'm going to face what you deserve for rejecting the one who made you. For saying to the God who upholds all things, who gives all joy and pleasure that you don't want his joy and pleasure, that you think you can run life your own way without him. I'm going to die and face the consequences of that death in your place so that you might be brought back, so that you might experience life, so that you might see who I am and you might know your God and be forgiven. But so many people in our world are so busy clinging on to the things that they perceive will give them happiness that they don't notice. They're holding on to bits of wreckage at the scene of the Titanic. The things that we think will give us joy and pleasure today are are just bits of wood floating on, on, on the surface of the water. And we're going, this is awesome. I want to hold on to this, this, these views, good things even. This, this, this education, this knowledge, this, this wisdom, I want to hold on to it and enjoy it. And we're holding on to it so tightly that we miss that we're on a sinking boat. We miss that there's a rescue ship within reach moving around called Jesus who has died in your place. That, that's the only, death is the only place that those things you're holding on to are going to take you. Those things that you try and find happiness in are just sinking to the bottom. And there's a ship there who's already died for you, who's sunk and experienced that for you and says, come to me for I have been raised And I will be raised forever. If you get onto my ship, you will have life. For I've paid the penalty for death in your place. Why don't people rush to Jesus? Why doesn't the world go, yeah, let's interview this man who lived, who did this for us? I'll tell you why I think. Because we don't have the guts to let go of the things that we think provide happiness. We don't have the viewpoint that Solomon does to say, do you know the end of these things? You had all the money in the world. Do you think you'd be satisfied? You won't. 
we don't reach that height. And so we think, I can do it. I can win the lotto. I can be the best astronaut that there's ever been. You can do it. It's possible. Statistically, I suppose it is possible that you, you could do that. But do you know what the people say when they get to the top? Meaningless. We don't run to Jesus because we think these things in the world around us will save us. We put too much hope in them. But the answer to life forever is to let go of the wreckage that is sinking around you. Let go of finding all your hope and all your happiness in the things that are floating around that the world tells you you need and to cling to the lifeboat called Jesus. The irony here is if you let go of the wreckage and cling to the rescuer, you step above that water level and see the good things that God has given us. You get to see how God made them for our joy and pleasure, but not by making them the ultimate thing, but by enjoying them as, as He has made them. All those things that you, you, you long to find the ultimate satisfaction for, you're released from the, the pressure to have to find the ultimate satisfaction in them because Jesus has done it for you. And so you stand back and you get to enjoy them. If you get a little bit of pleasure or a lot, it doesn't really matter because you know what? You will live forever. 82 years is a laughing stock. It's a firecracker in the sky compared to the sun. C.S. Lewis, writer of the Narnia series and so many great Christian books, is actually a Christian and he writes this in his book called The Weight of Glory. It's on the screen. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Are you too easily pleased? Are you settling for things that are sinking? Are you living like a pig in the pig pen thinking this is all there is, this short moment with your head in the bucket of pleasure saying, drink up. Life is found not in pursuing pleasure, but in pursuing Jesus. He's risen from the dead. Who else has done that? To never die again. Death has been conquered. Maybe for you tonight, coming out of hearing this, this message, maybe you're someone who's never really investigated Jesus. You haven't looked into the claims that he's made. I'm not saying just believe them blindly. I'm saying use your logic, take it to its logical end, investigate what went on with this man. And I think you'll find, like I have, like so many here have, that in Jesus there is actually real hope. That he actually said the stuff the Bible says he said. If you walk away from tonight without investigating Jesus at least, then you are missing, missing out on the best pleasure of life. And you are missing out on life forever. That's the claim of the Bible. Maybe for you, you have been investigating him for a while. You've been coming along, checking out Jesus, but you, you're like someone on the edge of a pool. <laughs> you know, when you, you want to go for a swim, but you're just walking around the edge, looking, where's the deep end? Where's the stairs? I, I've kind of got this. And, and you're dipping your little toe in, going, oh, yeah, yeah, this just feels all right. It's warm. I could jump in. But you just haven't jumped in yet. You haven't walked to the part that's the stairs even and just taken that first step. 
Maybe tonight's the time to say, do you see where everything else is leading you? This here, Jesus, is the rescue boat we need, the one who's died in your place. Maybe it's time to stop continually investigating every little avenue and be honest with yourself and come to him and trust him. Or maybe you're someone who has trusted Jesus. You've walked in the steps. You walk there and you're in the pool of Christianity, trusting him. Yeah, I like life. But you're in the pool kind of with all these people around the edge of the pool. And you're like, yeah, you know, they might want to jump in, they might not. I'm pretty convinced this is good for me, so I'm just going to live life and enjoy the pleasures of life. You're lying on one of those inflatable kind of lounge things with a martini in your hand going, this is the life. You know, I've got all the pleasures, I'm in Jesus, I'm floating around, but you forget that we're at war. The world around you, the people around you, society is trying to pull you out. They're saying that martini is why you live. You, you, you trust Jesus because it's awesome, because it's so good. And you've got your Jesus security policy, but then you live like everyone else. You chase after money and wealth and wisdom and pleasure, just like everyone on the outside. Everyone on the outside goes, yeah, he's having an awesome life. Maybe you're a Christian here and your friends think you're just, you're just kind of like a moral human being that you've got all the same desires and all the same kind of purposes in your life that everyone else around you does. What a tragedy. If you're not clinging to Jesus like a rescue ship, you're trying to pick up all the pieces of the sinking ship around you and bring him on the rescue ship and say, I need this too. Maybe tonight you need to say, show me where I can be more seriously pursuing you, encouraging those around on the outside to step in. You can be seriously listening to the one who is your king, the one who died in your place, opening up his word and carving out time in your week to listen from him. What is stopping you from pursuing Jesus fully? Wisdom, wealth, pleasure, possessions, as long as you do what you love. That's what Steve Jobs says. Solomon says, do what you love as much as you can and when you get to the end, it's meaningless because it will never satisfy. Don't be satisfied with a firecracker view of life. Come to Jesus who's rescued you from that empty way of living and provided you with hope forever. Are you willing to walk out of here tonight and exchange a few glimmering moments of watching fireworks for eternity of light bright as the sun. Let's pray. Lord God, tonight we are so thankful for what you've shown to us in your word, for the logical and rational conclusions of this man, Solomon, given to us through this teacher, to to see what matters in life, to experience avenues of this maze called life. And show us, Lord, what we couldn't see, but we get glimpses of. Father, we ask that we would see the world through your eyes. That we would recognize that hope comes from the one who made us, who happens to be the one who died for us. Father, we thank you that Jesus has come as the rescuer to pluck us out of our ignorance and foolishness and 
hell-bent desire to cling to the things that really won't satisfy. And he's shown us a life with him as king that satisfies all things, that enables us to live not just for the here and now, but live forever, to live as you made us to live. Lord, we are so thankful. So tonight we ask that Jesus might be front and center in our lives, that you would show us the reality of who Jesus is as we investigate him. You would help us to take those steps of trusting you, of, of stepping into what you've done for us. That you'd show us where we're holding on to things that don't give life. And that you would do that surgery on our lives to cut out the things we have placed so much hope and expectation in that really deliver nothing. We ask, Lord, we might fully pursue living for you. That we might know you, that we might love you, and we might share you with this world around us as if you are the only thing and person that matters. For, Lord, that is true. So we pray tonight Jesus would be like the sun to us. And by that light, we might see all other things, that we might live for him in all we do. Amen.